Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment to highlight uh, something that's coming up in our community. As you know, we are in the season of Lent, which means that our Lenten seminar is steadily approaching. Dr. Gordon Smith is speaking on walking through Lent with the Holy Spirit on March 18th and 19th. Now, this seminar is being offered both in person here on site at the church and online, and you can register through Realm or on our website. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we'd love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you are joining with us, may your hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, friends. So glad we can be joining together for worship. And the high point of this gathering from all our different places is a meal of communion that we'll come to uh, after we look at God's Word together. And today we're beginning our new teaching series for Lent uh, that we're calling The Final 24, in which we want to look at some of the events, some of the final words of Jesus in the 24 hours just before he gave up his life on the cross. And we're going to begin today, this final 24, with a scene that Luke describes in his gospel. And it's a scene where Jesus and his 12 disciples were gathered at what we now call the Last Supper, the last meal that Jesus would have with his followers before his crucifixion. And this is how it's described in the gospel of Luke in chapter 22. And as we hear it, friends, remember... This is a word of God. And Luke writes this in verse 15. And Jesus said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, as we'll see, this is a meal that was really reformed into the meal that we now receive when we gather together like this. For us, it's now called communion or the Lord's table, or Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. And I think we have questions about this meal, and even about what Jesus was doing in the events described in Luke 22. Like, you kind of wonder, is there some biblical or theological reason why we would say that receiving communion is truly vital, is essential in this life with Jesus? I mean, why would we say, really, whenever we receive communion together, that it is the high point of our worship gatherings? Is that an overstatement? And how are we to understand what we are doing and really what God is doing when we come together to this table? I mean, do you ever wonder, okay, what am I supposed to be doing when we receive communion? Am I supposed to kind of try to feel really sorry for my sins? Or is a priority just to reflect back on, kind of to scroll back through 
what Jesus did on the cross. I mean, it is so easy to misunderstand what we're doing when we come to communion and receive the elements. So let's look at what Jesus initiated at the table in his last 24 hours before the cross. And to help us do the, uh, this today, I want us to walk through really five questions about that last supper. Five questions we'll look at together today. And here's the first question. Okay, so what was this Passover meal? In fact, let's look at it again. Back in Luke 22, look at verse 7. It says this. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Then verse 15 again. And Jesus said to them, his disciples, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took a cup. And understand, that would have been one of the four cups of wine that were part of the traditional Passover meal. So he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, so this meal, this was what's now typically called a Passover Seder. It's the meal that our Jewish friends will receive and celebrate after sundown on what we call Good Friday. So what was going on here? I mean, what is this day of unleavened bread and the Passover? Let's just kind of do a quick review, just in case any of us really aren't familiar with those terms. So understand, by the time of Jesus, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread had become pretty synonymous terms. Because Passover, that was the remembrance of an event in Israel's deliverance from Egypt when they were in bondage that's described in the book of Exodus for us. And you might recall how the story goes, that when Moses confronted Pharaoh in Egypt, demanding that he release his Hebrew people who were enslaved by Pharaoh, God then released 10 plagues on Egypt to display his power and sovereignty. And the 10th plague was this. An angel of death was sent by God to go throughout Egypt, really killing the firstborn son in every home. But God told the people of Israel that the eldest sons in their home would be spared. Death would not come to them if they took the blood of a sacrifice, spotless lamb, and put it across the doorposts of their home. Because... If they did that, when the angel of death came on those homes, he would pass over them. And that sacrificial lamb really came to be known, the Passover lamb. So this annual celebration of Passover was, and really still is, a remembrance by the Jewish people of that Exodus Passover. So really, up to the Thursday before that first Good Friday that Luke 22 describes, Passover referred to this great exodus from Egypt. Okay, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it speaks of, that was also instituted by God as another part of Israel's departure and deliverance from Egypt. Because after the night of Passover, when the people of Israel left Egypt, God told them to only bring unleavened bread with them. Why? Why? Well, 
this unleavened bread really had two symbolic meanings. Really, for one, the unleavened bread, like what we use here, it was a symbol that Israel's deliverance came suddenly. It came suddenly. So they really had to leave Egypt before their bread could even be leavened and rise. So that was one of the symbolic meanings of the unleavened bread. But the unleavened bread also carried really another symbolic meaning. Because scripture at times, perhaps you know, refers to leaven in a positive sense, as a metaphor for a positive influence in our lives. I mean, for example, the kingdom of God is referred to as leaven in Matthew 13. I mean, when Jesus describes how God's kingdom can have this positive leavening influence in our sin-sick world. But in scripture, leaven is really more commonly used as a metaphor for or a symbol of a negative or sinful, sinful influence in our lives. I mean, for example, earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaks of the leaven of the Pharisees. And that's really how it's mainly used in reference to the Passover in a negative sense. So in addition to symbolizing really the, the suddenness with which the people of Israel had to leave Egypt and were delivered from bondage, unleavened bread really also symbolized that Israel was leaving behind the influence of Egypt. They were leaving the leaven, the influence of bondage of Egypt behind them because they had new life. They had a new direction, a new hope as they leave Egypt and walk with God. They could be saying, we are leaving our bondage, our old life behind. It's a powerful image for this Passover meal. And that really leads us to the next question we want to consider, our second question. Okay, so what changed with this Last Supper? Well, this meal was really the Last Supper in at least two senses. I mean, in a tangible sense, it was the Last Supper that Jesus would have uh, before he went to the cross and died there. But also in a theological sense, this was the Last Passover Supper. Because at this Last Supper, Jesus brings really this grand reformation, this reorientation of the 1,500-year-old Passover meal. I mean, let's go back to Luke chapter 22 with Jesus leading in the Passover meal. And we read this, begin in verse 19. And Jesus took the bread, that unleavened bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus brings this dramatic redefinition of this Passover tradition and meal. So the center point of this meal will no longer be Israel's deliverance from Egypt. I mean, for followers of Jesus, the Passover meal will, from this point forward, become centered on, in remembrance and celebration of, the one, true, final, ultimate deliverer. 
It'll be centered on Christ. It'll become for us communion, Eucharist, the Lord's table. Because Jesus is the final Passover lamb for you, for us together. Because the shed blood of Christ can be applied to the doorposts of my life by believing in and trusting in him as Lord. And I will then be spared from the judgment of eternal death and from eternal separation from God. It could say the angel of death, as it were, passes over me and I receive life in Christ. And the unleavened bread now reminds me that I am set free from the bondage of my own life. And I'm delivered by God into this new life with him. What a picture. And, and, and then add to that, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes communion. This is one of the lengthier descriptions of communion. It's in 1 Corinthians. Pick it up in verse chapter 10, rather, verse 16. And it says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ and the bread that we break? Speaking of the bread and communion, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, those two words translated as participation there, many of you know the Greek word that's there originally. It's koinonia. Now, we hear that word koinonia, and we most often think it means fellowship. But understand, it meant much more than just that in that day. Koinonia, really, it was an intimate sharing with or experience of another. That's koinonia. Meaning that what takes place in communion goes beyond what took place in the Passover Seder. I mean, as Paul said, as Jesus emphasized, and as the church has proclaimed really for 2,000 years, when we receive communion, we are not just remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. I mean, listen, in communion, think of this, in the Eucharist, we are participating with, we are intimately sharing with, having an experience of, being spiritually fed by Jesus. That's a fairly profound claim, right? I mean, so, so let's consider, for most of the 2,000 years of the body of Christ, of the church, in almost all of its traditions, from Catholic to Orthodox, Anglican, Protestant, one of the central elements of spiritual nourishment for followers of Jesus has been this meal of communion. Really, the reformed Passover meal that Jesus initiated on that Thursday night of Holy Week at that Last Supper. Okay, so let's think about this. I mean, in the same way that you and I would hopefully notice and be concerned if we didn't receive from God's word regularly when we gather, we should to the same degree be concerned if we do not regularly receive from the meal of Christ when we gather. I mean, it is not overstating the case to say that if you asked followers of Jesus for the first 1,700 years, what is at the heart of discipleship? What are the most essential elements 
to be fed and grow as a disciple of Jesus? Their united response would be, well, for one, the table of communion. And really, if you don't think that's true, just read from the church fathers. Read from Augustine, read from Luther or Calvin or Wesley. See if that is not indeed what they say. Okay, so can you be a disciple of Jesus without regularly feeding on the Lord's table? Well, yes. But you'll be a malnourished disciple. Because receiving from, being molded by, being fed by communion is that essential in this life of following Jesus. Now, it doesn't save us, but it is a means God has given us, the church, really to direct us, to shape us, to comfort us, to feed us spiritually. Now, if someone might say, okay, but the thing is, receiving communion less often, that makes it really more special. It'll just kind of become a rote weekly exercise if we receive Eucharist together more often. I mean, it really keeps communion more fresh, special, if we only come to the table monthly, for example. And to a degree, that's true. But wouldn't we respond by saying, but that completely misses the point. I mean, coming to communion isn't special because it it feels unusual or less common. It's not more effective in my life because it feels rare. It is special to use that word because God works through it, because he is active in it. So if we come to communion less often, we'll be fed less, just as it would be if we came to scripture less often. And that is why over the past years, friends, we have been increasing the frequency with which we receive communion together as part of this faith community. And it really is. It is conviction of our elders and pastors that this needs to be the prominent part of our gathering on the weekends when we gather. And I realize you might be thinking, but communion doesn't always feel beneficial when I receive it. I don't really feel anything unusual which can absolutely be true. But understand, its effectiveness in my life isn't based on my feelings about it. I mean, for example, I have eaten many meals at lunch or dinner where it really didn't kind of feel like it was that beneficial. But it still nourished me. I mean, it still provided me with sustenance, even though I didn't feel something special as I was eating it. And I think some people feel that they kind of have to stir up special spiritual feelings for a communion to have any impact on them. No. Because, friends, at times, you might be moved spiritually as you take this meal. At other times, you may not. So just remember, though, that the key is not your feelings. It is what God chooses to do in you through this meal, nourishing you spiritually. Which leads to a third question. Okay, so, well, what actually happens in communion? 
And really, kind of what are we supposed to be doing and what is God doing? Let's turn again to 1 Corinthians and listen to what Paul writes there. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 24, he says, do this in remembrance of me, quoting Jesus there, speaking of communion, and then adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so in communion, for one, we remember, and as we receive communion, we are proclaiming Christ's death and what his death brought. Now, the thing is, there really isn't a much more expansive teaching on this in Scripture, so it can really help to look at how followers of Jesus across history have understood this meal. And to that you might respond, I don't care how followers of Jesus across history have understood communion. Just tell me what Scripture says. But it really, it's helpful to remember that the different views on communion really across church history Every one of essentially points to scripture as their basis. So really at the risk of being overly simplistic, I think we could divide the understanding of communion into two really broad views. One view we could call the memorial view of communion. Now, one of the leaders in initiating that was one of the reformers in the 16th century. His name is Ulrich Zwingli. And so this view came mainly in the Reformation, but it wasn't the view of Calvin or of Luther by any means. But this memorial view holds that Christ is really, he's not present any differently with the bread and cup than he is in our life at any other time. So communion then, according to this view, is a time really to remember what Christ has done for us. And so the bread and cup, they're helpful reminders for us as we do that. Okay, that's a memorial view. And then the second broad view of communion, we could say, is real presence. Real presence. And really, that term points to a belief that Jesus is somehow uniquely present in communion when his people come in faith to the Lord's Supper together. And the earliest church fathers, first and second century even, almost all of them held to some form of that view. Now, that phrase, real presence, it's been understood in a number of ways across church history. For example, our Roman Catholic friends, they would say that the bread and cup actually become the body and blood of Jesus. But then there are many other traditions that believe that the bread and cup are symbols, truly. They don't become Christ's body and blood, but as we take the bread and cup, Christ is present. He's at work by his Holy Spirit in a special way. Okay, so you might wonder, so from which of those two broad traditions, memorial and real presence, from which of those traditions does the alliance come? Now, understand, real presence, that was the view of the Christian Missionary Alliance even at its inception. Believing that Christ is present through his Holy Spirit in this meal as we come in faith. So we, we don't just remember, although that's part of it, but we also, in a spiritual sense, receive from Christ. Receive what? Spiritual strength. Encouragement. Sustenance. Hope. Okay, and I, I think that prompts us to a fourth question. Okay, so what biblical basis is there for such a view? 
Why would anybody suggest that even? Well, let's turn to John's gospel because John says this. In John chapter 6, it speaks of Jesus saying to the crowds, I'm the bread of life. Now, that shocked people. Some people were shouting, that's blasphemy. But Jesus goes on to say this. After they claim, he's speaking blasphemously. In John 6, 53, it says this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those two were shocking words. And most biblical scholars understand that Jesus is referring there to communion. That in Christ, in the sacraments, there is this spiritual nourishment and encouragement. In fact, listen to what A.B. Simpson said about this. Again, he was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and he wrote this. It would do us no good if we could actually eat the flesh of Christ. It would be profane cannibalism. But if we can receive that which lies behind his flesh, his vital strength into our being, that's all we need. And that is the real substance of the resurrection body. Jesus is the embodiment of life and power. And by the Holy Spirit, he imparts to us that life and power. How? As we worthily receive the sacrament, communion, and discern him in it. To Clyde, are you saying that when we come in faith to receive communion, that in some way we actually receive life and strength from Christ? Yes. And that's what I think Scripture teaches. And it's what our tradition and truly most of the church universal by far has declared across its 2,000-year history. I mean, it's not because the bread and cup are anything special in and of themselves, we would say. We would say they are symbols. But God has chosen by his grace to extend life and strength to us through the Holy Spirit when we receive this meal in faith. And, and please don't misunderstand me on this. Communion is not some means of salvation for us. We have that only through faith in Jesus. But communion is, just as baptism is, a fundamental expression of that faith. And in communion then, as we see in God's word, we're not just remembering what Christ did, although we certainly do that. But if we come in faith, we are also actually receiving spiritual life and strength from Christ through his Holy Spirit. So is that how you have understood what we are receiving when we come to this table. And I think that prompts us to a fifth, our last question, which is simply this. So who can participate in this meal? And we would say, anyone who wants Jesus. Anyone who says, I want to put my faith in him. And, and truly, if that's not you yet, there is no embarrassment at all in not partaking. And really, we respect your honesty in this, and we're just so glad you've joined with us. And maybe you wonder, well, what about children, though? 
you know, we aren't told specifically in scripture. We leave, so we really leave that to you parents you, because you know your children. And we could say it would seem wise then in light of what scripture does teach us that children at least have some understanding of what they're doing when they receive this meal. So parents encourage you to talk to your children about this meal. Okay, so let's do this. Let's put this in the practice. Let's receive from Christ. Let's eat together. And are you needing strength in your journey? Then come in faith to this table. Are you looking for hope to grow in you? I invite you to come to the table. I mean, do you feel like life is getting the best of you? Oh, come to the table. Okay, will all my challenges be gone if I do? Not at all. But in Christ, in faith, by his Holy Spirit, you can now receive life and strength from him. So come and receive from Christ. And let's do that together in our gathering places. We come again to this reformed Passover meal. And we come and we take this bread, this unleavened bread, and we remember even as we break it, of the reality of the suddenness of the gift of life we can receive in Christ. And also remember that in this meal, we are leaving behind the influence of our old ways, our old brokenness. We have new life in him. And then with the cup, as we receive the cup, we remember from Jesus' words, there will be a day when we receive this cup again with him in the kingdom of come. Can you imagine that scene? When all followers of Jesus, whatever that will look like, will gather together and at least one more time receive the bread and cup with Jesus. So, Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit, as your word tells us, would you feed us in this meal by the bread and the cup, nourish us in Jesus, for we come in faith. And, friends, I invite you then to take the bread that you have with you. And let's again pause for a moment. Just want to give you a moment with the bread in your hand to pause and reflect on what this means and what it is. And I remind and invite you, the body of Christ broken for you. Take and receive from him. Then if you take the cup, and again, before we receive it, let's just be still for a moment. Think again to the imagery, the history of what this cup is connected with. Be still in his presence. And here again, the blood of Christ poured out for you, received from him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of life in your son. We thank you for the gift of this meal even. And Father, we pray you would nourish us. I pray you would encourage my friends, give them strength and hope, even as they've received and as they move into this week. Guide us, we pray, that we might know and walk in this new life with you. We pray together and all God's people say, amen. So good to be joined with your friends. Hope you can join in next weekend, perhaps even on site. I would love to have you here joining in the celebration. But as you walk into whatever this week does hold for you, 
Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit this week, you may abound in hope in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.